Remain standing as you're able to do so as we turn first in God's inspired and infallible word to Deuteronomy chapter 28. We'll be reading verses 58 through 63, and then we'll turn to the book of Revelation chapter 15 where we'll find our text. God's inspired and infallible word. Let's give it our careful attention. Deuteronomy 28, verse 58. If you are not careful to observe all the words of this law which are written in this book, to fear this honored and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring extraordinary plagues on you and your descendants even severe and lasting plagues. As I'll point out later, uh, in the the Greek Old Testament, uh, this reads, even great and marvelous plagues and miserable and chronic sicknesses. He will bring back on you all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they will cling to you. Also, every sickness and every plague, which not written in the book of the law, the Lord will bring on you until you are destroyed. Then you shall be left few in number, whereas you were numerous as the stars of heaven, because you did not obey the Lord your God. And it shall come about that the Lord, as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and multiply you, so the Lord will delight over you to make you perish and destroy you, and you will be torn from the land where you are entering to possess it. Revelation chapter 15, verses 1 through 4 is the text that we're dealing with today in the sermon. Revelation 15, beginning at verse 1, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Amen. Be seated, please. And let's pray.
Grant, O oh Lord, as we have sung that all of our thoughts and the words spoken would be acceptable to you, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight through the help of the Holy Spirit, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Last Lord's Day, we completed our exposition of Revelation chapters 12 through 14, which contain the fourth cycle of visions in this book. Uh, There are seven cycles of vision, so we've completed four of those cycles. And these chapters, uh, in chapters 12, 12 through 14, picture the war against Satan. Chapter 12 presents the woman, Messiah's mother, uh, the male child, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, and Satan, the dragon, symbolically representing Christ and his church warring against the devil. Chapter 13 presents Satan's allies, the sea beast, Corporately, the Roman Empire uh, in the first century, individually, uh, the, the Roman Empire Nero, and, uh, and the land beast, later called the false prophet, symbolizing the false teachers of Israel. Chapter 14 shows us the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, victorious, with the 144,000, whom you will remember are symbolic of uh, especially the, uh, the, the elect Jews that, that were brought out of uh, the great tribulation of the first century, but uh, more broadly than that, the, the, the true church of all ages uh, is standing there victoriously with uh, the Lord Jesus on Mount Zion, that is, on the Mount of Jerusalem. Chapter 14 goes on to describe how that victory is accomplished, how God uh, accomplishes uh, his will uh, and his word on earth. And he does so through the preaching of the gospel. We see uh, later here in chapter 14, the, the angel who preaches uh, proclaims the eternal gospel, and that gospel has a component of salvation, and it has a component of judgment, and in particular, what follows the, 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 this angel in its announcement of the eternal uh, gospel uh, is uh, the announcement of doom on uh, the, the sea beast, uh, this ally of Satan in the war against the woman and the Christ child, against the woman, the church, and the Lord Jesus Christ, her head. And then you remember that uh, in the last segment of that 14th chapter, uh, we have a picture of a great gospel harvest. And fittingly, that gospel harvest has a component of salvation, And it has a component of 
judgment as well. Chapter 15 begins the fifth cycle of Revelation, presenting the judgments of the seven bulls of wrath. It's important to answer the question as we uh, as to when these judgments that we're going to be considering, uh, beginning in chapter 16, when these took place, when did these happen? Some interpreters argue that these judgments pertain to the end of history, uh, the end of time, the last day, the time of uh, Christ's return. One reason for this view uh, is a, a general inclination on the part of uh, theologians, on the part of interpreters, to consider the book of Revelation as entirely future. Uh, They're called futurists uh, in their understanding of Revelation because they think the Bible only points us out to the distant future. They also note that John now says uh, here in chapter 15 and verse 1 that these seven plagues are the last, that the wrath of God in them is finished. Does this mean that uh, this vision, beginning here in chapter 15 and verse 1, uh, this vision to John is taking us to the final days of history? to the last day when the Bible teaches that the Lord Jesus Christ will return in glory to judge the heavens and the earth. Well, there are a number of reasons why the answer to this question is no. But the contextual key is understanding uh, that there is uh, that the opening words here in chapter 15 and verse 1 link it to chapter 12 and uh, verse 1. And that's the first thing that we're going to consider today as we begin our exposition of this fifth cycle of visions in Revelation. Now, Revelation is a hard nut to crack. Uh, It's full of symbols. Some of these symbols are hard to understand, and therefore I have made it my, uh, my goal to explain these symbols to you throughout the exp- the, uh, our exposition, to explain what these things mean and, and uh, it's my hope and prayer that, this, uh, that the, the explanation of these symbols and understanding them uh, will uh, lead you to a, a, a better understanding of the book of Revelation. But Revelation, even though it's highly symbolic, is also a, a very practical book. And so we want to glean the practical things that God has given us in, in this book Uh, all theology, even symbolic theology, is meant for application. So there's some things here for us today in in our text 
this is not simply as uh, uh, my wife and I's first Reformed minister said in southwest Oklahoma, this is not merely pie in the sky, by and by. Uh, this is down-to-earth stuff that impacts our daily living and, and our daily lives. And one of the things that impacts us is our duty as Christians to worship God as we're called to do. And what Revelation 15 verses 1 through 4 gives to us is a picture of what our response ought to be to our great God who is a great judge over all the earth. We look at the judgments that God has wrought both in the Old Testament scriptures. We read about uh, those judgments in Deuteronomy 28 this morning and we, uh, we, we see these things and uh, and sometimes it gives us pause. Is this really, does God really, is he really a judge? Is he really a God of wrath? Does he really bring these judgments upon the earth? And does he bring these judgments upon people? Should we worship God for his judgments? Revelation 15 verses 1 to 4 tells us, yes, we should. That's exactly what happens in this opening vision of the fifth cycle of visions in Revelation. We'll look at uh, several things here. If you notice in your text, uh, we can divide these th- the, the text uh, in three parts. First, the great and marvelous sign in heaven. Secondly, uh, that's verse 1. Uh, verse 2, the, the sea of glass mixed with fire. And thirdly, the victory song of Moses and the Lamb, verses 3 and 4. Look first then at this, uh, the great and marvelous sign uh, in heaven. Verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 1, the, shift, uh, the, the scene rather shifts again from uh, the earth to heaven, from which the final judgment cycle is about to be revealed. John sees another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Verse 1 says, by calling it another sign, he connects it with the vision of the heavenly woman and the dragon who wars against her. Chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 3, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and seven horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, or seven crowns. So we see two. Uh, we see a great sign, and uh, uh, the great sign of the, the woman, uh, and then uh, the woman wh- who was with child, uh, and we see another another sign there in in Revelation twelve verse three, uh, the sign of the dragon, and now John sees another sign, yet another sign that he calls great. This time he says it's great and marvelous. This new sign is the sign of seven angels who had seven plagues. 
That indicates the climax of this book. There are various ways to divide Revelation, and theologians have gone to great pains uh, to uh, divide it in different ways. The way we have uh, been operating is in terms of seven cycles of visions. We're in the fifth cycle. Others uh, divide it into four sections, the entire book into four sections, uh, and uh, they would say that here uh, begins the climax of the book of uh, Revelation. And indeed it is, in a sense, a climax. It's a climax of the judgment cycles, as we will we'll see as we go on. So it serves as a final introduction then to the last part of this book, if you will. It's something like a superscription for the rest of Revelation. As uh, in the trumpet visions, back in chapter 8, uh, where John sees seven angels given seven trumpets, and then there's a delay before they actually begin to sound those trumpets, before the, the judgments of the seven trumpets begin. So here, uh, we see the same thing. John first sees seven, sees seven angels with the seven plagues, the seven bowls of wrath, and they don't begin to pour out those bowls of wrath until later, until chapter 16. There's no reason to believe that these are the last plagues or the last judgments in an ultimate, absolute and universal sense, that is, in the sense of the last day, the second coming of Christ. Rather, last refers to the sequential order of the judgment visions. We have seen the vision of the seven seals, and uh, the judgments contained in those seven seals. We've seen the vision of the seven trumpets, and the judgments contained in the, the trumpets, and now we see uh, the last cycle of uh, judgments, uh, the judgments of the seven bowls. Those, uh, the number seven there ought to clue us in that there's a, a sequence here. Uh, recall that the judgment depicted in the visions of the seals and in the trumpets were limited. But here there's a finality. Uh, the, uh, God's wrath is unleashed. And there's a finality. Uh, there's this sense of finality in this last, uh, in, these, in the plagues, the, the, the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. Recall further, not only that this, is, uh, it, this, this shows us the sequence of the judgment visions of seven here in Revelation, but recall further that in chapter 14, verses 7 to 20, we're given a picture of a grape harvest. Uh, the, the earlier verses, uh, the, the gospel harvest of salvation, gave us a picture of a, of a wheat harvest. Uh, the second uh, uh, great vision there uh, gives us a picture of the grape harvest and who is the vineyard. Uh, 
of God. The vineyard of God is Israel. And so this judgment uh, on, uh, in terms of, of the limited scope of the book of Revelation, this last judgment cycle encompasses the final outpouring of his wrath upon apostate Israel in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70. The great and marvelous sign in heaven, that's the first thing that we're shown in this fifth cycle of visions. Secondly, John sees a sea of glass mixed with fire. As the vision began, John sees something like, uh, we read here in verse 2, something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, representing the heavenly counterpart to the Red Sea. How do we know that? Well, that becomes clear uh, in verse 3. When they're singing, uh, the saints in heaven are singing the song of Moses, the servant of God. So the vision is taking us back and showing us and showing John and through his eyes showing us uh, the sea of glass uh, mixed with fire is taking us back to uh, the exodus of Israel and to the Red Sea the parting of the Red Sea where Israel crossed uh, on dry land and then Pharaoh and his armies were buried under the Red Sea as it collapsed upon it upon them. In the Old Testament, the Red Sea uh, is seen as the dwelling place of uh, the evil sea monster. Isaiah 51, verses 9 to 11, Psalm 72 Verses 12 through 15, Ezekiel 32 and verse 2. The four evil beasts of Daniel chapter 7, which we have read a number of times through our exposition of, uh, of Revelation, are seen as rising from the sea. Daniel 7 verse 3. The sea in Revelation generally signifies the realm of chaos, and evil. In chapter 13 and verse 1, the first beast comes up out of the sea. In 16 verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl of wrath on the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing in the sea died. While Later in Revelation, chapter 21, verse 1, uh, in the new heaven and the new earth, there is no longer any sea. Why? Because in heaven, there's no chaos. There's no longer any turmoil. There's only rest. There's only peace. There's only glory. So here in chapter 15, and verse 2, in the vision of the sea of glass mixed with fire, John sees the chaotic powers of the sea as calmed 
by divine sovereignty. The fact that the sea of glass is mixed with fire shows that the sea has become a place where the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, has judged the beast. Almost everywhere in the book of Revelation, fire signifies God's judgment upon the wicked. So that's taken place. The Lamb is standing on Mount Zion. And the beast has been judged. Here in verse 2, the, the vision to John pictures the saints rejoicing at the water's edge, like Moses and the Israelites after the original Red Sea crossing in Exodus chapters 14 and 15, victorious over Pharaoh, uh, the monster from the deep, as the Psalms portray Pharaoh. Literally, uh, the saints here are those overcoming or uh, the conquerors in fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7 verses 10 through 11. The Lamb's overcoming has, has paved a way for the saints' overcoming of uh, the, the sea beast. And the description of their conquest over the beast, because of the Lamb's work, not in their own power, of course, but, uh, but because of uh, Christ, the Lamb of God, and His power, uh, the description of their conquering is, uh, their conquest is threefold. They have been victorious over the beast, over his image, and over the number of his name. Remember, all of those things are associated uh, with the beast. Uh, an image is made of, of uh, the sea beast, and that beast is worshipped. And uh, the number of his name has this uh, 666. Uh, the number of uh, the Emperor Nero has this ominous character about it because of the great persecutions that, that Nero poured out upon uh, the Christian church. So we're being told here in this sea of glass mixed of fire that just as the Israelites, just as God delivered uh, the Israelites out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, so God's people symbolically here are shown to be delivered out of Egypt, uh, delivered, given uh, victory over uh, the, the great sea beast, uh, and uh, being brought into the eternal glory of, of the Lamb. These who are standing by uh, the sea of glass are those who have persevered, refusing to compromise their faith in the midst of pressure uh, to capitulate to uh, the world system of evil and, uh, and to, uh, to buckle under uh, persecution, even when they faced death. Chapter 12 and verse 11, they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when they faced death. Revelation calls 
believers not only to recognize Christ the Lamb's victory through the power of the resurrection, but to persevere in the faith themselves in the face of constant pressure to give in to the world of unbelief and its godly, uh, ungodly enticements. This is consistent with what we've seen earlier uh, in the book, in uh, what we've been calling the here is formula used in connection with the revelation of the beast and those who worship him in chapter 13 and the announcement of doom for worshipers of the beast, uh, chapter 14. Here is the perseverance of the saints, chapter 13 and verse 11. And then here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus, chapter 14 and verse 12. The here is formula of revelation indicates what our response is to be to what's being revealed here. What should we be doing as Christians as a result of these great revelations that are given to us in the book of Revelation? And the here is formula says this is what's necessary. This is what's called for. And what we're being called for, uh, called to do rather here in the book of Revelation is to persevere in the faith as we see the example of those who have conquered in the Lamb, some even to death. We ourselves are being called to, to persevere, uh, to keep on in our faith in the midst of uh, trials and tribulations and persecutions in this world. So we've seen uh, the, the great and marvelous sign in heaven. Uh, we've seen the sea of glass mixed with fire. The last thing we're going to deal with is the victory song of Moses and the Lamb. The heavenly singers of verse 3 are those who have been victorious over the beast. Those described here in verse 2, standing on the sea of glass mixed with fire. Their song is the song of Moses and the servant of, uh, the servant of God and the song of the Lamb, verse 3. It's the song of Moses because God's victory in liberating his people and destroying their enemies stands in continuity with the ancient exodus. That is, our victory as Christians stands in continuity with the exodus of Israel from the land of Egypt, which Moses and the Israelites celebrated in song as they watched the Red Sea close over Pharaoh's pursuing army. You read about that song in Exodus chapter 15. But it's also to the Lamb. This is a song to Moses and a song to the Lamb. A new song because the Lamb has triumphed in his sacrificial death and resurrection life and is standing on Mount Zion, the great king 
who is coming in judgment on the sea beast and the land beast. Revelation 14, verses 1 through 3. God's acts of, uh, new acts of redemption call forth new songs of praise from his people. We see this in, in the Old Testament scriptures, the, uh, song, uh, the psalm that we sang this morning, Psalm 98, O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. Uh, the Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Psalm 98, 1 and 2. The wording of the victor's song here in uh, verse 3 uh, of our, uh, our text, verses 3 and 4 of our text, is a blend of Old Testament praises for God's perfections revealed through his mighty and righteous interventions on behalf of his people. The most direct allusions. So again, this is pieced together. It's a song that's been pieced together from the Old Testament, uh, which is why it's important to recognize that Revelation is one of the most Hebraic Bible uh, uh, chapters of books in the whole uh, corpus of the New Testament. Uh, If you want to understand Revelation, you need to understand the Old Testament. You need to understand all these uh, allusions to the Old Testament. So the the most direct allusions are uh, great and marvelous that we read uh, there in Deuteronomy 28.59, translated in uh, the Old Testament, uh, the Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. Uh, great and marvelous plagues that uh, God brought on uh, the land of Egypt. Righteous and true are your ways, Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, King of the nations, and who, who will not fear and glorify your name, Jeremiah 7, verse 10, you alone are holy, all the nations will come before you and worship you. Psalm 86, verse 9. Your righteous acts have been revealed. Psalm 98, verse 2. So the saints of heaven are singing a song of old and a new song. In in this confession... And the confession of their song, uh, great and marvelous are your works, which opens the song. The works of God are especially his deeds of judgment. Punishing his enemies, vindicating his his people. Uh, The same combination of great and marvelous in the Greek Old Testament, described those plagues that God inflicted on Egypt in preparation for uh, the Exodus there in Deuteronomy 28:59, in the sign uh, in heaven that consists of uh, the seven angels who are pouring out the seven last plagues, uh, chapter 15 and, and verse 1. These are judgments that God is uh, about to finalize on apostate Israel. God's justice is the predominant theme of the song that's being sung here by those uh, 
depicted for us in uh, this image. God is extolled at the beginning. Righteous and true are your ways. And in the conclusion, your righteous acts have been revealed. What, uh, what, what justice? What righteous acts? The judgments of God. So God is being primarily praised for God's, uh, for his judgments. It's interesting, isn't it? How often do we praise God for his judgments, for his righteous judgments? How often do we praise God for his wrath? Well, the book of Revelation tells us that we ought to. The martyrs, it's happening here uh, in Revelation 15, verses 3 and 4, is that we're seeing the martyrs' earlier lament in chapter 6 and verse 10, where they cry out and ask, How long, O Lord, until you take vengeance on our enemies? This is being answered. And the saints in heaven praise God for that answer of vengeance upon their enemies. Justice has come. God's wrath is imminent and justice is coming. For those who were suffering in the first century, God's faithful remnant whether Jews or Gentiles in the church, those who are suffering through the great tribulation, uh, there at the end of the first century, justice is coming. When the third and final bowl is uh, poured out, we'll see uh, in chapter 16, it turns rivers and springs into blood. And the angel of the waters will praise God's justice in giving blood to those who have been bloodthirsty themselves for the blood of the saints. Righteous are you, O Holy One. The angels say, chapter 16, verses 5 and 6. The heavenly altar Witness to the martyrdom of the saints, chapter 6 and verse 9, will respond in chapter 16 and verse 7 with an echo of the victor's song here in verses 3 and 4 of our text. True and righteous are your judgments. Now why is this important to us? as Christians who are no longer living in the first century but are living in the 21st century. Because the church of Jesus Christ throughout redemptive history is besieged. It's a besieged church. Satan and his minions as well as his earthly agents 
whether the Roman Empire or the first century or the ungodly civil governments of our day continuously besiege the church. And there are false religions that besiege the church. You read, uh, you read any top 50 list of the most persecuted uh, the, the, the nations where, where Christians are, are, are most persecuted around the world. And you will find that the majority of, in the majority of these nations, Christians are being persecuted by the Muslims, by Islam, by false religion. In the first century, it was uh, the false teachers of Judaism leading the Jews in the wrong direction. Today, things are different. But we still have these pressures. We still have these persecutions uh, coming upon the church of Jesus Christ. And the besieged church that is constantly under attack by Satan and the world, Satan and his agencies, so seemingly weak, and outnumbered, must never forget the mystery of the kingdom of God growing powerfully through our frailty. Through Jesus, the Lamb of God, we are overcomers. The book of Revelation is teaching us. We are conquerors in Christ over the devil and his worldly agents, whether political or religious. By God's righteous judgments. By God's judgments against his enemies. By his wrath poured out upon those who oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that, dear Christians, is the fitting response. to this song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. We ought to be joining in and giving praise to God. The appropriate response to this climactic display of God's justice is holy fear in glorifying God's name as the king of the nations before whom all the nations, the Bible clearly teaches, will indeed come and worship. And we, among those nations, must be faithful to come and praise God for his justice, for his righteous judgments. God's judgment, God's justice is of the essence of his character. God is a spirit, our catechism teaches us, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. 
And we are apt as Christians to latch on to some of those holy characteristics of God that describe his essence. Infinite, eternal, and unchangeableness, wisdom, power, holiness, truth, his goodness, his saving love. We love to praise God for all of these things. But we're told that God is a God of justice and that he is to be praised because he is the God who always brings vengeance upon his enemies and the enemies of the church of Jesus Christ. Just as God is to be praised for his wisdom, his power, his holiness, his goodness, his truth, God's justice is praiseworthy. Praise is the appropriate response when we see God's judgment. Now, we can't always recognize God's judgment in the days in which we live. There are some who are quick when a... When a uh, when a great uh, natural disaster comes uh, upon the earth, some are quick to say, well, that's God's judgment. Uh, Some were quick to say that uh, 9-11 was God's God's judgment on the United States of America. Well, it may have been. Uh, But we can't always see. We we don't have the mind of God. We can't tell uh, always tell what he's doing in his judgment. Sometimes it's more clear. Sometimes it clearly seems to be a, 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 a great judgment of God. But sometimes it doesn't. Psalm 36, verse 6, directs us to God's unfathomable judgments. Your judgments, the psalmist says there, are like a great deep. Paul writes in Romans 11, verse 33, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and power of God. How unsearchable are your judgments. And unfathomable your ways. We can't fathom what God is doing here on earth. He's too deep, the Bible tells us. Things are too murky. For us to see clearly, at least now. But when we finally stand on the sea of glass, all things will become clear. All of God's righteous acts of judgments, a judgment will be fully revealed. And then we'll understand what God was doing in our lives, our countries. Our churches, in all the great movements of world history, then we will see clearly, and God's judgments will be all the more great and marvelous in our eyes. And we'll join together with all of God's saints of all ages, to sing the victory song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, praising God 
for his righteous and true judgments forever and ever. Amen. Our great and mighty God, the one who is just and true in all of his ways, we confess, O God, indeed great and marvelous are your works. Great and marvelous are your works of judgment, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways. We stand before you, O Lord, to fear and to glorify your name, for you alone are holy. We, among all the nations of the earth, come to worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Teach us, O God, to embrace the awesome judgments and your almighty wrath revealed in the Holy Scriptures, and teach us to fear you, to give you glory, because the hour of your judgment has come, and to worship you, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.